Good morning. Hope everybody's well today. I'm going to continue our discussion and thinking about the some of the struggles of the life of faith. Let's uh, pray together first, though, please. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came, that he lived, that he died, and we thank you that he came out of the grave, and he's alive, and because of that we have hope, and we have life forever, and that nothing can separate us from that. Thank you for your grace. We recognize again that every breath we take is a gift of your grace. Help us to thank, be thankful to you for everything that you've given us. Thank you for this opportunity here today. As we look at your word, give us understanding, Father. Give us teachable hearts and minds. Give us clarity. Give us ability to focus our, our, our thoughts and hearts upon your truth. Pray that it will make a difference in our lives and how we think and how we live even today. So we commit our time to you. Pray for your guidance and direction. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, last time we, <clears throat> I'm going to pick up for two more, two more reasons for why I think we struggle with faith that we began last time. I want to repeat again, of course, that we are creatures of faith. We are dependent beings. We are created by God, which makes us dependent beings. We are not independent beings. We are dependent upon something, someone, for every single breath. And we need to remember that every single moment. We are creatures dependent upon God for every breath. Now, the life of faith, then, that we live, this trust. Paul says we walk by faith, we live by faith, and not by sight. Every moment of our lives is a life of trust and faith. But we talked last time about some reasons why that oftentimes is a struggle for us. And it is. It's hard to trust a God you cannot see. We wrestle with things in our lives that bring about issues of, of doubt and difficulty. Last time we talked about two reasons I want to suggest for why we struggle with the life of faith. And the first one, remember, was that much of what God says and what he asks us to do contradicts our reason, it contradicts our logic, it contradicts our experience, it contradicts what we see as human possibilities. And God says, do it anyhow, believe it anyhow. We struggle with that because it's so different than the way we live our lives often. And what happens is we often begin to, tr uh, to make God in our image instead of realizing that we're created in his image. And that brings us to the second point we talked last time. And that was that the, the object of our faith, which is God, is often not the God of Scripture. We let this God that we have kind of invented or thought about in our own thinking dictate to us what is true. And too often this God of our, of our minds is not the omnipotent, eternal creator God of the Bible. 
It's a God who is much like us. And therefore, it's a God who is difficult to trust. It's a God who, who is, if he's like us, he's inconsistent. He's, he, he makes mistakes. He really doesn't know what he's doing all the time. He's inconsistent like us. And that causes, I think, for us many times a real strong struggle in our lives with, with the, the God that we say we believe in. Because we're believing in a God that's not really the God of the Scriptures. And so we have to make sure that our thinking is guided by God's truth. We have to be students of the Word of God. We have to immerse ourselves in what God says is true to counteract often what our own feelings are. And we ended last time, we'll end today again too with First Thessalonians chapter 5, where God talks about, Paul says, that God will accomplish his purpose. He's faithful to do what he says, and he will do it. We cannot, as, as we saw in the Old Testament, no one can thwart God's purposes. That's the God we want to believe in. That's the God we want to have at the core of our lives. The God who, Paul says in Romans 4, remembers the God who raises the dead and gives life to the dead and who creates out of nothing. That's our God. And we want to make sure that that's the God that we truly have faith in in our lives every day. Well, today I want to look at two other reasons why I think we often struggle with this life of faith in trusting God. And the first one of these for today is that we are in a spiritual battle. The core of our battle is not physical. It's spiritual. And in this battle, we have spiritual enemies. Spiritual enemies who are telling us to walk by sight and not by faith. Walk by sight and not by faith, they say. And oftentimes we summarize these three spiritual enemies as the world the flesh, and the devil. Scripture talks about that. Our spiritual enemies that we wrestle against, the world, the flesh, and the devil. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 tells us that the world, the elements of the world that we wrestle against include three things. And some of you know this probably by heart. There's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All things against we wrestle, spiritually wrestle, and these are strong enemies. The temptations of the flesh are strong. The temptations of the eyes, things we see, are strong. We face a culture which is not 
encouraging us towards sexual purity. It's encouraging the exact opposite, isn't it? The lust of the flesh. All over the media, all over the, everywhere we look, it seems like. The power of this. One of my daughters is the executive director of the care center in Dayton. A pregnancy center, and they do a lot of counseling and so forth. They also have a branch of their work that is called the EDGE, and they go into middle schools and high schools, and they talk to classes about sex, about sexual diseases, and other things. And all of this, as they discuss these things, is based around the notion of abstinence. The best way to avoid, obviously, sexual diseases is abstinence. And so they talk about it from that perspective. And interestingly enough, not everybody in Dayton in the community favors that kind of an approach. They say, well, the the kids are just, they're going to do it. So we need to be talking about safe sex. We need to be talking about how to be safe while you have sex because the kids are going to do it. I mean, there's no, there's no way around it. So we just need to figure out how to protect them. I think about that, and I think about character education, which we also talk about in our public schools, right? Character education. And there is, an, there is a character trait, a virtue, that we talk about and teach and encourage. And it's called self-control. I think if you remember in Galatians chapter 5, one of the fruit of the Spirit is called self-control. We think self-control matters. We think self-control is important in our lives. We need to teach it to our kids, develop it in our kids. And so I wonder how that fits with this idea that, well, they're just, they're going to do, do, they're going to have sex. Well, there's nothing we can do about that. Really? How do you square that with, but we need to teach them self-control. The lust of the flesh. Powerful enemy that we have. Gluttony. Another one of the lusts of the flesh. These are powerful ways of getting us to, to think about not trusting God in faith and walking by faith, but walking by sight in the things of the world. The lust of the eyes. The temptations of the things that we see with our eyes. We want more stuff, right? We're getting into Christmas, and now everything you see is about getting more stuff. You want that. You want these things, right? You, 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 you need these things, right? Strong temptations. The materialism of our world. And the pride of life. 
pride. Pride of accomplishment. Pride of, in our appearance. The one thing I want to just talk about for a couple of minutes with regard to the pride of life and the temptations of this is the, is the pride of religion. Remember the Pharisees? Very proud of their religious observance, very proud of their, of their keeping the law, being, being righteous on the outside at least, looking very good, looking very religious. And the pride that went along with that as well as the judgmental, critical spirit that accompanies that. But don't just limit that to the Pharisees. Because we can fall into the same sort of temptation. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. Since you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why as if, you're, if you were living in the world... Do you still submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. But they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Religion, man-made religion telling us all these things to do and not to do, and then we, we, we follow all of this, and then we look good, or we don't look good, depending upon how we're doing, how we're, the kind of performances that we have in our lives. And we either feel inferior or we feel superior. If we're not measuring up, we feel bad. If we are measuring up, then we get proud. And then we judge other people according to where we think they ought to be in all of this. I learned more verses this week than you did. That makes me better than you. That makes me more spiritual than you. That makes me a better Christian than you. What's wrong with you? Why did you only learn one verse this week? This kind of thing, where you begin to get into comparisons and competitions, all, is, all of that is performance and religion, pride of life, Performance is always based on external things. Laws, rules, all of this, the do not taste, do not touch, all this. These are all external things. Our problem is not external. These are external things that we judge one another by in our performance and, the, and how we feel proud about how we're doing in our lives. The multiplication of laws and rules is never a sign of spiritual health. Did you get that? The multiplication of laws is never a sign of spiritual health. It's a sign of the opposite. Our problem is not external. Our problem is internal. 
And the only thing that can get into the internal part of our lives is the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Grace and love are internal principles that God is at work in us, in us, by means of his Holy Spirit. He's the one who's growing us up. He's the one who is changing us to be more like Christ. We also have a spiritual enemy that this text talks about who is the devil. Satan, very real. And he says to us that what is real is what you can touch. This is real. What you can see, what you can touch, using your senses, that's what's really real. Only empirical data, sensory data matters. Only sensory data counts for truth. Only what we experience through our senses. There's no spiritual reality at all. That's what he wants us to believe. There's no spiritual reality at all. The real world is this world of material things, and that's all there is. And it's easy for us to not only buy into that lie, but to also, we're tempted to believe that Satan, I believe sometimes we believe that he's stronger than he really is. We believe that he can do more than he actually can. And because of that, sometimes I think we don't really understand or believe that there is real victory over sin that is really possible. If Satan's too strong, then God really can't overcome him. And we are easily tempted to really believe that. And he, of course, Satan wants us to believe that. He wants us to believe that he's stronger than God. He's more real than God is. And we have to be careful that we don't buy into that lie. God is God. And no one, including Satan, can thwart his purposes. And he sent Jesus to die for us, and he raised him from the dead. There is truly victory over sin that's been accomplished at the cross for all time, which means there's real victory over sin in your life as possible. There is real forgiveness, and there's real victory in living out your Christian life. So we need to make sure that these spiritual enemies of ours, we understand them and that we're aware of them and we're consciously making ourselves aware that we have things out there in the world and in our flesh that want to destroy us. But God is greater. God is better. So I want to move to the fourth reason for struggle. We not only have spiritual enemies, a spiritual battle, 
But there's something else going on as well. And that is that God's ways are often mysterious to us. Hard to understand. And we have to recognize that God's ways cannot be controlled, predicted, measured, or manipulated by us. God's ways are often mysterious. Hard for us to understand or to know. And they cannot be controlled, predicted, measured, and manipulated by human beings. A friend of mine told me that a number of years ago, and I, I thought that was one of the, I still do, one of the wisest things I've ever heard in my life. Because we spend so much time trying to do exactly what we can't do. Measure, control, predict, manipulate the work of God. It's interesting when critics look at the Bible, they often think or talk about it as though it's, a, it's an amazing book that's just full of just unbelievable stuff, right? It's, it's like this book, that, there's no way you can, in, in an intelligent person could possibly believe the Bible anymore in the 21st century because it's got all these crazy stories in it and all this, all this stuff that's just unbelievable. Have you heard somebody talk like that? I certainly have. But when you actually read the Bible, what do you actually find? It's interesting that in the, the biblical history, which goes over a few thousand years, right, in biblical history, the fact is there's only three periods in biblical history where you actually see miracles happening, at least that are reported. During all of that time in the Scripture, there are three periods of time where you see any sort of multiple miracles happening. The first one, of course, is Moses in Egypt doing some of the stuff he did there with Pharaoh and all of that, right? The second one is Elijah and Elisha. We're going to look at something of that in just a second. Elijah and Elisha, the minister of those two prophets, they did a number of miracles that are recorded. And then the third period of time is Jesus in the Gospels in the early days of the early church, the apostles. That's it. According to biblical history that we have recorded, the vast majority of human beings lived their whole lives, never saw a miracle of any sort, never saw any great act of God. In fact, it's interesting to me, when you look at the story of Gideon, the angel came to Gideon and said, you know, you're going to lead out the people, right? You're going to be the big general, right? Which he had some problems with at first, of course. But the first thing Gideon says to the angel is, where have you been? We've heard these stories about miracles and stuff God's done in the past to our fathers, you know, back somewhere ever, right? It's been hundreds of years ago, but we haven't seen anything lately. The vast majority of biblical history is not chock full of unbelievable, miraculous stuff. It's just not. Most of the people in the Bible live very ordinary lives like us. God's ways of dealing in history primarily has not been through miracles. 
and huge demonstrations of power. That's not been God's normal, typical ways of dealing with human beings. Has he done some? Yes. Can he do those? Yes. Has that been his general pattern? No. So it's just an incorrect view of Scripture. Tell them, when somebody tells me that, I know right away they've never really read the Bible. Because they would find out that, no, it's not chock full of, you know, unbelievable stuff. It's, it's mostly about real people who lived ordinary lives, walked on the dirt just like we do, right? struggled with the same kinds of things we do. That's the vast majority of Scripture. God has not primarily worked through miracles in Scripture. Now, I mentioned Elijah. One of the periods of time when we do see some miracles recorded is in the time of Elijah and Elisha. So if you have your Bible, just, just for a minute, I want to look at uh, 1 Kings. If you go there, 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. Chapter 18 of 1 Kings is one of the great, great stories of the Old Testament. One of, those, one of those moments when God really showed his power. Right? This, this, is the, this is the prophets of Baal and Elijah. Is this, is this not a great... If you haven't read this lately, I encourage you today, read 1 Kings 18. Elijah challenges them. Okay, let's build an altar. Put a sacrifice on it. See whose God answers. Well, you pray to your God, I'll pray to mine. Remember that? Great story. There's a whole lot of prophets of Baal. One Elijah. Okay. So they scream and holler. He says, well, yell louder. Maybe he's asleep, right? Maybe he's out to lunch, which, of course, he was. <laughs> no response, of course. No response at all. Elijah then says, okay, let me, it's my turn. Right? He says, I douse this thing with water. Just pour water all over this, this altar. And, and, and there was a flood all around the altar and everything. You know, then he prays, and of course God responds and burns up the whole thing. Incredible demonstration of the power of God in response to a prophet of God who called on him, right? Well, then what happened? So I want to go into chapter 19. Look at verse 1 of chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword because he had the prophets killed. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. So may the gods do to me and even more if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and rose and ran for his life. I have a feeling that Elijah thought, as, and this is tempting for us as well, that if God does this miraculous, powerful thing, which he did, that Israel's going to repent. This is going to have to bring them to their knees, right? This is going to do it. They're, they're going to get rid of Ahab and Jezebel. We're going to get a good king now. Things are going to be different because God did this incredible miracle. Aren't we tempted to think that way too? If God would just 
do some great thing, right? If we can just get the, the top NFL player to give his testimony, then everybody will get saved. And I'm not, I'm going to sign my heart there. I'm not belittling that at all. But I'm just saying we, we tend to think that if we do certain things, right, right, God, right, that whole world's going to get saved. I'm, a, I, I'm thinking Elijah might have thought something like that. This, this is going to change Israel. Well, what actually happened? He got a death threat. That's what actually happened. I'm going to kill you. So what does he do? He runs and hides in a cave. Now, think about that. This is the same prophet that just called on God on the mountain and saw this incredible act of power on the part of God. Now he's hiding in the cave. There's some interesting verses that follow this now that I want us to look at. God provided for him, of course, the next few verses after what we just read. Angel came and gave him food and so forth. Then verse 9. He came to the cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I want you to note Elijah's name in Hebrew. E-L is El, which is Elohim, short for Elohim. One of the God, names of God in the Old Testament is Elohim, or El. The I in Elijah, in Hebrew, is a personal pronoun. Okay, my. And Yah, right, is short for Yahweh. The other major name for God in the Old Testament. <laughs> Think about this. Elijah's name is, my God is Yahweh. That's his name. He just saw Elohim do this incredible, powerful miracle on, on the mountain. So now the angel comes and says, what are you doing here? My, my God is Yahweh. That's interesting, isn't it? Well, look what he says. Well, I, he said, I, I've been very zealous for the Lord the God. I've the sons of Israel have forsaken the covenant, torn down the altars, killed the prophets, the sword. I alone am left. They seek my life. Take it away. I'm it. I'm, I'm, I'm all that's left. Uh, it's, it's, it's desperate. Right? God, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I might as well die. Really? This is the same man that not long before this saw this incredible act of power by Yahweh. Now he's hiding in a cave saying, I'm it, I might as well die. Then we have something really interesting. Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, verse 11. Behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
and after the earthquake, a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. What? I thought God is om omnipresent. God is everywhere. <laughs> what do you mean he wasn't in the fire and the earthquake in the wind? That doesn't sound like good theology. Of course, that's not the point, is it? God says, Elijah, I want to show you something. Come out here. Let me show you what I can do. <laughs> so he starts tearing things up with winds and earthquakes, and shaking the whole mountain, fires, demonstrations of power again. You know, he'd just seen the thing on the mountain. Now he's seeing some more firsthand personal object, you know, personal visuals, audio visuals for, for Elijah here. God's putting on a video show for him right? of his power, what he can do. But in each one it says, oh, no, God was not in that, right? I mean, that, that's not what God's about. He can do those things, but those things don't save. They might startle people, but they don't save people. They might amaze people. But that's very temporary. What have you done for us lately? Right? They don't save. Note what happens then at the end of verse 12. After the fire, a sound, interesting that word, a sound of a gentle stillness. And when Elijah heard that, he wrapped his face in his mantle, went out and stood in the entrance of the cave, and behold, a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he repeats what he had said before. In verse 15, the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and so forth. God's presence not in the fire, the earthquake, the wind. But it was in the gentle stillness. Is that not interesting? God said, I'm not about making a lot of noise. Noise is fun. Noise is spectacular. Noise... Gets attention for a moment, right? I'm about the gentle stillness. Where is God at work? In the human heart. And he's really quiet when he's doing that, isn't he? doesn't make a lot of noise. You don't even know he's doing it. But he's changing lives forever. It's just that it's not controllable by us. 
It's, it's not predictable by us. It's, it's not measurable by us. It doesn't fit into our Excel spreadsheets. How much our church has grown in the past year? How many more members do we have? How many more buildings do we have? How many more TV shows do we have? How many more of this and this and this that we have that we can measure? And think that by doing those things, we're somehow measuring the kingdom of God. No. God's at work in the quietness of people's hearts. Another good example of this is Nicodemus and Jesus. Remember Nicodemus? John chapter 3, if you want to turn to, there, uh, turn to that text for a moment. John chapter 3, uh, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And he says, Jesus uses this strange language to Nicodemus that, that he had to be born from above or born again. Nicodemus couldn't quite figure that out. What, 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 what does that mean? In verse 7, Jesus says, John 3, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now note what he says. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. What an incredible comparison to make. Work of the Holy Spirit, he says, is like the, is like the wind. Where's the wind come from? I don't know. The atmosphere somewhere. Where's it start? I don't, I don't know. Where's it go? I don't know. What do we see? We see the effects of the wind. Trees, leaves blow, right? Things move. We feel it. Right? We don't understand it. We don't know what it's, why it does what it does. We can't predict it. We can't control it. We can't. We, we sort of measure it by speed sometimes, but we don't really. It doesn't really. We don't really know much about it at all, do we? We just see its effects. And Jesus says. That's how the work of the Spirit is. The Holy Spirit's doing His thing all the time. But He does it very quietly. He doesn't blow trumpets. He doesn't make big announcements on national TV and say, hey, today I'm going to save ten people in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. You come and see the miracles. Holy Spirit's work is very quiet. No fanfare. But man, is it effective. Great verse in Zechariah 4, you know it, many of you. Zechariah 4, 6. If you know it, say it with me. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
not by might. Can he do powerful things? Of course, he has. Sometimes he does. Is that the modus operandi of God's work in the world? No. It's not generally going to be by power. It's not going to be by the sensational. It's not going to be by the things that startle. And it's going to be by the work of the Spirit. If you've done very much speaking or teaching of Scripture, and I know Chris can identify with this, many of us can, minister the Word, and sometimes it feels like you're really bombed. Right? When it's over, it's like, oh. Well, I sure could have done that better. <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I wasn't very clear. I, I felt like, oh, man, wish I could do that over. <laughs> and then you find out what the Holy Spirit was doing. Well, you're feeling sorry for yourself and thought it was a total bomb and waste of time, you find out God changed some lives. And you didn't even know it. That's how he works. He works powerfully and effectively and efficiently in the hearts of people. That's not something we can control, measure, predict. But we want so much in the flesh to do that, don't we? Because we believe we should walk by sight. God says, no, walk by faith. Trust me. I am building my church. I am building my kingdom. And I'm sure like, like me, you look at what's happening at least in our culture in the United States and you wonder sometimes who's winning, right? You, it, it's discouraging at times. And then I, get a, I got an email from a good friend of mine in, in, in Hawaii who has ministry going on in Burma, Myanmar now. And he had some pictures of some pastors who came together for some training. The only training they ever get, they've never been in formal school they come from villages all over the place, riding bicycles for two days to get there, to learn something of the Word for a couple of days. And I'm so encouraged when I see those kinds of things because God is building His church and the gates of hell will not prevail. But that's the God you have to learn to trust in your life. When it looks like he's not around, he is. He will never leave you or forsake you. Nothing, no one can thwart God's purposes. Nothing can separate us from his love. So let's learn to trust that God. Now, a little child, the Bible says, Jesus says, have the faith of a little child, right? Some of you have had children, grandchildren. A two-year-old. A two-year-old trusts her daddy, doesn't she? Explicitly. Jump in the pool, honey, I will catch you. Eventually, she does. I will catch you. And she says, okay, he'll catch me. I'm okay. Now, we don't want to be, also from Scripture... We don't, we don't want to be as naive as a two-year-old. Two-year-olds don't know much about anything. They are very naive. 
And we don't want to be naive, particularly about the things we've been talking about today. We don't want to be naive, but we want to trust the way a two-year-old trusts her daddy. But make sure that your trust is in the God of Scripture, who again says in 1 Thessalonians 5, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Let's pray, please. Father, help us. We need your help to grow our faith and our trust in you in spite of the things of life that so easily distract us, in spite of the pains of life that cause us to question your grace and your love. We know that you have not promised a life of ease, you have promised a life of good. But help us to immerse ourselves in what is truly true about who you are, not to believe lies that are not true. Give us that faith, give us that grace today. Trust our day to you, our lives, our marriages, our families, our homes. Commit them all to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.